Hello, and welcome to our first special edition of Plot Trist's My Word as Work Host again. What is this? What are we doing? This is Meg, and I'm joined by... I'm Alexander Vasti, and I write historical romance. Um, and we somehow, we, we talk with each other sometimes on Instagram, and somehow <laughs> we just realize that we both are kind of obsessed with another author. Her name is Lois mcmaster Gujold. We are passionate fans, particularly of Bujold's Borkoskin Saga, which is a very long series with many books. Um, and over, I think, a couple of years or a year, Meg and I <laughs> texted each other constantly um, about these books. We would just randomly send each other quotes from them. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Emojis, you know, thinking about them. Yeah, we would just kind of up with the idea to do this. Yeah, so I thought, well, you know what? We're doing this already. Why don't we get other people to talk with us about Gujold and then maybe get other readers into her? Because I do feel like she's somehow overlooked in like social media or something. She's, I mean, she is 30, 40 years old. Yes. I mean, to be fair, she is an older, not older, but her books have been out for a long time. Um, They're not part of like today's, like release schedule right exactly um and she's said that she's in semi-retirement so she's and by semi-retirement doesn't mean she's not writing it means that she's not marketing her own books mm-hmm. and not publishing on a regular set schedule there's no news necessarily of a next book although you know we continue to hope uh every we'll... every time every day every day i'm like maybe there'll be another one maybe it'll come out soon <laughs> Yeah, so these books have been running for decades, and they have had, I think, for both of us, a kind of just a sort of important impact on us. For me, I know they've had a huge impact, not just on me, but on my own writing. So we thought we would tell, sort of start off a little bit with talking about how we came to these books and what they have meant to us. So I started reading these books about 10 years ago, and I listened to all of them on audiobook the first time through. The audio of them is absolutely wonderful. Grover Gardner is a hilarious narrator with an just incredible comic timing that fits the book so well. You know, he has such a sort of great dry delivery of um, Bushel's wit. They're just great audiobooks, and I listened to them while I was commuting from New Jersey to New York for, for about a year. I just like obsessively listened to these whenever I had free time, and they just really stuck with me. The characters are so rich. The worlds are unbelievably well-developed, and just really, Bujold creates these worlds and really commits to them and sticks the landing and fully explores and dives into them. She also, there are many romantic arcs, which as a romance writer is something that I always love when there's a romance arc in my fantasy or sci-fi. And her humor is is incredible. I sort of often say that like the humor in my books is half Bujold and half I Love Lucy. Um, <laughs> that's basically when I read humor, that is, the, that is the foundation upon which I'm drawing from. So yeah, so I have, so since starting the series and listening to them all in audiobook, I have listened to them all in audiobook over again, and I've read them. One thing that's interesting is that I have never read the last book in the series, um, the final novel, Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen. I've never read it because then it would be over and I have just never wanted to like, commit to it being over. So I've never read it. So I'm going to read that book um, for the first time for this podcast. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting to me uh, because we have a very similar 
way of coming to adult, actually. Um, so I first heard about her when I was an undergrad. So many, many years ago, I'm not going to say the date because that would just <laughs> make me so sad. <laughs> but um, one of my one of my really good friends, a uh, fellow English major, recommended the books to me. So she and I both um, really like science fiction and romance. And she said, you really need to read Bujol. At that time, I, I actually started with Comar. So that was the only book that she owned physically. And so she lent it to me. And I thought it was fine. Like I liked it. But I didn't actually start reading the series at that time. So I kind of put it down. Um, and then later, uh, about 10 years after that, I had a long commute. I was commuting about an hour every day in between Baltimore and D.C. And I decided to start listening to some books on tape to help pass the time. And I thought back to my friend, Nicole, and I was like, well, she recommended it and I can get these books on tape. So I started listening and like Alex, over the course of three or four months, like I was just immersed in these books. I started with Shards of Honor, which is her first book and kind of where you're supposed to start really. And I was amazed. I know we're going to be talking about how it's maybe not her best book going forward but for me again as a science fiction fan and as a romance fan I was like this is a science fiction romance <laughs> yeah right and you can tell even from that book that she's got this base in historical romance and this base in science fiction and they just come together so beautifully mm -hmm. starting there uh, so you know, that's that's how I got to it the first time I ever heard it, when you said, how did you first hear of it? And I also remember the first time I ever heard of Bujold. This is completely weird. I was on like a baby name site, but I, I was definitely like in college. I think I was like trying to come up with names for um, characters, for book characters. And I like saw the name Cordelia and someone had commented about the name Cordelia. I always think of Cordelia Naismith for Kosigan, uh, you know, and they said something like the most, you know, badass, adventurous, like strongest, most honorable female character in sci-fi. And like, for some reason that just stuck with me. I was like that, A, that's a really cool name. Cordelia Naismith Forkosing is a cool name. And B, like, wow, that's like a, really, a great claim. And as someone who loved fantasy and sci-fi, I, I was like very eager to read about this badass female character. So yeah, that always kind of stuck with me. I'm like, oh, I need to find out who, who is that Cordelia Naismith again woman? What's she up to? Uh, and then finally eventually did come to it, although a little later. Yeah, I mean, it's just such an incredible series. Like just everything about it. She does such a good job of, and we'll be talking about this in the next, you know, 14 episodes, <laughs> but such yeah. a good job of creating a world without contradictions, which mm -hmm. I think is a really big issue for certain people. Like we talked about, we talk about Elizabeth Hoyt, who we both love, but in her 12 to 14 book series, mm -hmm. the Maiden Lane series, there are times where you're like, oh, she got this wrong. She got that wrong. Yeah. doesn't matter that much. No. Um, right. Or when you watch Star Trek, right? There's always the one episode and you're like, well, Crusher shouldn't say that because she knew that, that this happened in this episode or whatever, right? So Yeah, it's amazingly internally coherent. She very rarely makes um, those kind of little consistency mistakes that jump out at people. It's interesting because when you said without contradictions, I, well, I didn't know where you were going with that. Because one of the things that I think is really brilliant about the books is that she really interrogates and investigates 
I don't know if contradictions is the word, but like internal conflicts, right? So, so, so often in the book, we see characters have to make difficult choices where neither option is really that great. We see the characters make huge disastrous mistakes and then have to reckon with the consequences, both on a character level, on a planetary, on an, you know, it's a book about empires, so on an imperial level. Um, and then we see how those uh, mistakes and difficult choices and ethical dilemmas um, you know, linger in their lives and in, in, you know, on a galactic scale. Um, yeah. so yeah, so it was both incredibly internally consistent, but also, you know, really engages with those difficulties and those contradictions in a really, yes. I think, very brave way. Yes. And I mean, that's one of the reasons that you read science fiction, right? You want mm -hmm. to read about these grand ethical issues that are happening, but maybe in a way that looks at it differently than, than you would in a contemporary world. Absolutely. Um, and for me, that's also part of the reason why I read historical romance. Yep, um, I was doing the exact same thing. That's why I write historical romance. Yes, yes, that is that is exactly one of the reasons why I choose to write historical romance because I think that it gives us a different way of talking about issues that are present and real today, um, but that the conversations might feel familiar. And we're talking about them in the modern, in the, you know, in the contemporary moment, but when we place them in a different time, in a different period, it allows us to think about those issues, ethical, you know, topical ethical issues in a different way, in a different light, in a different vocabulary. Yep, exactly. But anyway, we have a lot of amazing authors lined up to speak with us yes. and you are going to get to hear us talk about the books. We hope that we will inspire you to pick these books up for the first time or read along with us or reread. And I don't know, just enjoy, enjoy Bujol the way we do. So these, this limited series is going to be different from the other plot twist episodes in that we are inviting guests to talk about each book. And for this episode, we are starting off with a bang. We're extremely excited to have Elizabeth Everett with us. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, we're very, very happy to have you. Alex and I are both big fans of your books, and we always love talking about Bujold with authors of books that we also like. So there you go. Yes. <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> happy network of, of book loving. Um, yes, all right. Exactly. So Elizabeth, can you tell us today, we're going to talk about Shards of Honor, which is obviously like the, the first book, chronologically speaking, in the series. Um, this is our first podcast episode. So we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why you wanted, why you picked Shards of Honor, why you wanted to talk about this one with us today. Um, I think first and foremost, uh, it's a to me, it's a romance. Mm -hmm. uh, not all of the books in the saga are that the the those two characters. As soon as he was like grumpy, and he turns and looks at her and said something snarky, and she. And Court Delia, the main character, is like, oh, whatever. You know, I just knew. I knew it was going to be sunshine. I knew it was going to happen. I knew they weren't going to bang because it was sci-fi, but it was okay. Um, so, so that's what hooked me. That's what hooked me. Later in the series, I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything. But later in the series, the main character is not them. Is not Cordelia, who's the main character in the first book, but that character as well. Like. The characterizations are so witty and so dry and so mm. warm. And I don't know what Bujol has in terms of what her educational background is. But as I was reading it, I kept thinking, this person is a historian. 
This person understands history. This person is a perhaps a, a historian in a military historian or in in a political historian, but but the the different levels on which this book works are so appealing to me because it's so rare that I'm satisfied uh, on an intellectual level as well as you know on a on that kind of basic like I need these two people to come together level. Amazing. I do. <laughs> I do know what you mean. Because yes. <laughs> this we is have, also the have... book that that hooked me on Bujold. So yeah, yes, me as well. We have um many guests coming on the podcast who are not specifically romance writers, but I am. Meg is you know is a big romance reader, so yes, we're very we're always happy and excited to talk about the romance aspects of this of these books. All right, so I'm going to start off, as I always will throughout the episodes, with giving you a quick plot summary of the book in case you haven't read it. Although if you haven't read it, you should go read it and then quick come back and listen to the rest. Um, or if you've read it a while ago and need a refresh. All right, so here's what happens in Shards of Honor. So Shards of Honor is from the point of view of Cordelia Naismith, who is the captain of a Baden astronomical survey ship. So she's the ship's captain. She's from a place called Beta Colony, uh, which is very sort of, um, you know, kind of quite modern, technologically advanced place. And one of the things that they're doing is they're surveying the galaxy and seeing, you know, what's going to happen when we jump through this unexplored wormhole. What are we going to find on the other side? So they're at this um, sort of unnamed planet, uh, sort of starting to survey it. And while investigating and kind of, you know, um, exploring about a little bit, her base camp is attacked. Her crew is gone and she sort of is stunned and is awakened to discover that she is there with a Barriaran captain whose name is Erevor Kosigan. And Erevor Kosigan is kind of famously like this bad guy from Barriar. He's known as the Butcher of Komar. She's kind of <laughs> horrified to discover that she's alone with Erevor Kosigan. Erevor Kosigan is alone with her because there's been a mutiny with his crew. So his crew has kind of seemingly turned against him. Um he has he decides to take her prisoner and then sort of haul her back to his his supply cache and then hopefully get his crew back and sort of subdue the mutiny etc and they're also accompanied by um someone from her crew who has been injured um had a head injury from a weapon called a nerve disruptor and cordelia is sort of errol kind of initially suggests well he's you know he's he's basically doesn't have his neurological capacity he's essentially dead and cordelia is horrified by that and says you know absolutely not we need to protect him he needs medical care we need to bring him along with us so cordelia and errol and the sky and some dubauer kind of um trudge <laughs> to, to across this this planet um to this barrier and weapons cache um they and and in this process sort of over this this journey they sort of fall in love um and so they get to the base camp where Kosigan Errol takes back um the crew he and um Cordelia and and Sergeant Dubauer go back to the um the the ship she meets someone named Sergeant Bathari Bathari is going to kind of loom large throughout the book um and later books as well um and Errol asks her to marry him and come back to um to Barriar as Lady Vorkos again. And she's kind of like horrified a little bit by this, by the notion of going to Barriar, which is kind of this like backwards, terrible planet. Um, she doesn't really sort of answer one way or the other. Um, then her crew turns up to rescue her. So she had told her Baden crew to go back to Beta Colony and, you know, whatever. They can deal with the political ramifications later and try to get her back later. But they didn't listen because Baden's never listen. They just argue. <laughs> 
so the Batons come back. They try to rescue her. Um, then the the mutiny, the the mutineers kind of join forces with the Batons to take back the ship from Errol. Cordelia completely thwarts this plot <laughs> amazingly, um, sort of single-handedly. Um, and then she ends up going back um, to Beta Colony. Then we have a little bit of a, a time jump, and um, the Baryarns have invaded a planet called Escobar, um, and they are in the process of trying to take over um, this planet Escobar, uh, and Cordelia is with the, the Baton military, and she um, is part of this sort of team, which is delivering a secret weapon to Escobar to repel the Baryarn invaders. In the process, she's captured by this horrible... Um, Guess Rudyard, who you know tries to sexually assault her, and in the process is murdered, killed by Sergeant Bathari, who was the guy that she had met, um, one of one of Errol's crew members back, um, back in the Forkosigan <laughs> ship section. Um, so, uh, so Errol shows up, very sort of relieved that Cordelia is okay. Um, it's also sort of a like awkward political moment because um Rutger is dead and they're gonna think you know Errol did it they don't want Bathari to get in trouble for it so Cordelia and Bathari end up hiding in Errol's cabin for a while while this invasion of Escobar sort of goes on the invasion of Escobar turns out to be a disaster um the crown prince Serg is killed along with um kind of like all of the other like upper level people um and it and Cordelia figures out that that basically this was on purpose, that they knew it was going to be a disaster um, and they did it anyway. And the reason for that is that the emperor, Emperor Azar, wants to get rid of his son, the Prince Zerg, because Prince Zerg is this horrible, unstable bad guy. Um, and Azar also wants to get rid of the war party because he, he's dying. His grandson is only, you know, like a little child. And so the idea is he'll get rid of Zerg, he'll get rid of the war party and kind of hopefully there'll be peace Um in the meantime, uh, until his grandson is able to grow up and, and become a strong emperor. Cordelia ends up um, being taken to a prison camp. Um, she and Errol are kind of reunited there in the prison camp. He asks her to come back to Barriar with him, and she says no. She's she's basically like, I love you, but I don't want to go to Barriar. Like, Barriar seems like a really bad place. <laughs> Everything I've learned about it is quite bad. Um, no, thank you. So she goes back to Beta Colony um, and ends up having this like absolutely hellish experience on Beta Colony, her home planet, where they are, they believe that she has been programmed by the Baryarns to serve as kind of like a mole in the, in, on Beta Colony. They don't believe that she could have legitimately fallen in love with Errol. They don't believe that she could legitimately believe Errol to be a good guy. Um, and so sort of the more she tries to protest, the worse it gets. Um, she ends up escaping in very wonderful, badass, dramatic fashion. She goes to Barriar and tells Errol, like, yes, actually, I will marry you. Um, and then the sort of like ending moments are kind of like these sort of moves toward the future. There have been these uterine replicators, which have um, the fetuses of women who were raped by Barriaran soldiers during this Barriaran um, occupation. Um, and they've sent them back to Barriar, basically, like, deal with your your creations. And so Errol and Cordelia kind of take charge of them. One of those belongs to Sergeant Bathari, and it's his daughter, whom he names Elena. Um, the other sort of move toward the future is that Azar, the emperor, is dying. He's literally about to die, and he persuades Errol to take on um, the, the job of regent, meaning that he will be in charge of Barriar until his grandson um sort of grows up enough to to take on the role of emperor and um errol and cordelia talk about it and um errol ultimately accepts 
this is going to set the stage for the next couple of books. All right. So that's, that's the, that's Shards of Honor. Whew, a lot happened. <laughs> very, very plot <laughs> heavy book. Yeah. Yeah. We, I feel like we say that after, no, I can't say that. <laughs> All my summaries. I know my summary, every summary yeah. is like five minutes long. Yeah, I, I do think it's very interesting because I think Bujold is a very character forward author and yet her books are very heavy on the plot as well. There's a lot of plot in every single one of her books. So mm -hmm. that's so true, actually. She really, I mean, when I think about this book, I think about Errol and Cordelia, right? And Errol and Cordelia and how amazing, rich, complex, difficult characters both of them are. And then, yeah, when I get that plot summary, I'm like, wow, that's actually like she she does a really good job characterizing them, I think, through the plot and through their actions. Yes. So do we want to start out by talking about this as a romance? Because I think that was one of your big questions, Alex. Like when you read it, you didn't necessarily read it right away as a romance, right? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, but I think Elizabeth and I did. Like, uh, so I listened to this book. The first time I read it, I listened to it as an audiobook. And I, to me, it was just like obvious immediately that it was going to be a romance. Like the, the, their moments at the campfire where they shared these little confessions and then when he proposes to her on the spaceship, like to me, that was, that is a historical romance proposal Absolutely. in space, right? Like he goes, so he's taken Cordelia prisoner. They're on his ship. He's the captain of the ship. She's his prisoner. He goes into her cabin and props the door open. <laughs> it's so charming. Right? Because he doesn't want, he doesn't want there to be rumors about like anything happening in this room. Uh, and then his proposal is, uh, I would love to take you to Vorkosigan Sorlo. And she's like, well, sure, I guess I can like visit sometime. It seems weird. Like, do prisoners <laughs> get out of prison to like to go visit? And he's like, no, you would come as Lady Vorkosigan. And like, to me, like the entire, everything about the proposal is historical romance to me. And like, yeah. I immediately fell in love with the book. Like I was already in love with it, but like right there for me, that was, that was my love at first sight. <laughs> um, no, I put, I, so I, I put in our like pre show notes. I was totally flabbergasted by this. Cordelia and I were in the same place. She was like, I'm sorry, what? I beg your pardon. Do you want me to come and swear? <laughs> the what? And I was feeling the same way. I mean, I did, obviously I was getting like romance vibes, right? Like, and she's thinking about his, his sexy hands and you know, whatever. And I was, I was definitely feeling it. I was feeling the romance, but I was so not expecting this proposal. I, and I mean, I get it. I completely get it. And, and he explains it, you know, he's like, I didn't want you to think I was like offering an insult. Right. Like, and he's like, and the power dynamics are weird. You're my prisoner. Like, I, you know, obviously he's like, I want to sleep with you, but like, I can't because you're the, my prisoner. And, and it makes sense through Errol's mind. But I was so deeply, I think, embedded in Cordelia's mind. And she's, you know, she's like, maybe we'll bend down a little bit. Who knows? <laughs> you know? And so when he proposed to her, I was flabbergasted. So so I don't read a lot of um, science fiction just because I just find it so... Um, there's, there's just so much misogynistic crap out there. And it's so like, you know, the, the heroes are always kind of toxic in their masculinity and it, it's just not 
my oeuvre, but um, but I had read, so I started with Bujol's other books, which are romances. Mm. Um, the fantasies? The fantasies, the, yes. The and Sharing the, Knife or? The Sharing Knife, um, okay. the, the, the one. The World of the Five trilogy. Gods, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and the heroine in the trilogy she is also a you know an older woman experienced woman she's lived life and she is she's at that really juicy portion of her life where 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 you're you're out of your 20s and you don't you know the you're you're um you just you're starting to not like understand that you don't have to care about what people think or do and she's really mm-hmm. coming into her own and um and there's romance in there and there's and and what's really interesting and i think throughout the whole series what she does what Bajol does is she's not necess- she doesn't necessarily hit you over the head with may december romances with gender switched sometimes whether you know she doesn't necessarily hit you over the head with interspecies romances but um she, they they just I think that's why maybe when you first read it, you didn't see romance right away because she's not hitting you over the head with it. She's not giving you um, this two stereotypes. She's not giving you a beautiful young woman and a handsome swashbuckling, you know, she's giving you a middle-aged woman who's a little too tall, you know, and um, an older man who is not the most... um, he's not very good at showing his effect affection. He's not super articulate. Um, she, she just, it's so the way she rolls it out is so matter of fact and so believable, but so romantic. I can, you can, I almost think, I almost feel like her romance, the romance part of these books are kind of subversive. Like she likes to slip it in there and, and I feel like that's, when I walk away from these books, that's what I keep in my head, but not for everybody, obviously, because yes, her, her plot lines are intricate, her characterizations, even the, down to the smallest character are, um, they're multifaceted, they're fascinating. Um, and again, like I said, um, there's so much, um, commentary or ref, ref, maybe more reflection than commentary on politics and on military history and on um, social organizations, like sociology in general. So, and so if you're reading it and you're not a romance reader, you're not looking for romance, there's so much more there for you, but she's, she's definitely like putting it in there and, and she's doing it in every way, shape and form. She has, you know, four armed characters and furry characters and, and it's, but it's never, um, you have to be respectful of everyone. Here's my hammer and I'm going to, you know, hit you over the head with it. It's very, very well done. Very layered and really, really smart. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I think we will talk about a lot <laughs> is how Bujold really, she is not afraid to go deep and dark. She sets the stage. She, you know, creates these extremely complex ethical dilemmas and then she fully explores them. Or she sets up a world like Barriar that is, um, you know, regressive, that is highly patriarchal, that is extremely militarized. And then she 
fully explores what that means, what that mm-hmm. means for characters like Errol, who who is sort of the ideal, you know, he's a man, he's a vor, which is this like upper, you know, class military cast. But and she's also going to explore what that means for characters who don't fit that, you know, perfect vorish mold, what it means to be Beriar in, you know, in different classes, different genders. Um, you know, people with disabilities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that is one of the things that I love about the series is how fully she explores her creations. They're, they're never shallow. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I think the other thing that struck me too, because I reread it in, you know, in preparation for this was um, she isn't, she wasn't dismissive, 100% dismissive of the Baryan culture. It was right. obviously a militaristic culture, obviously hierarchical, which came about because it became isolated from the larger culture. And you think back to the Dark Ages, again, where there's some isolation from, you, do you know, like people are cutting off from one another. What do we do as a tribe? What do people, we humans do in communities when they're isolated and they have only themselves to, there's no wider frame of reference and you know, there's you go all Lord of the Flies, right? So you, you <laughs> we are chimps at heart. We need we we like a strong man. We like a you know, um, we like security. We like safety. If the whole world is exploding, and we're seeing, and of course, you know, this is why I love writing historical, right? Because we're seeing these cycles and these parallels come back around again and again and again. That when when tech, you know technology is at this rapid pace and society is changing and and even our, our understanding of gender is changing, which seems so elementary. People are people are that change is very frightening. And so what do they do? Like they're regressing because of their fear and they're turning to these um, primal power structures. And and I think when she's but she didn't she doesn't she's not dismissive of it she understands that there are parts of it that work there's a reason that that society is in fact continuing to flourish um and she highlights some of the problems in her own culture which is very technically advanced um but maybe not as um so much more cerebral right um, but she's not, she doesn't, yes, she's not a fan of a, a military hierarchy or of feudalism, but she never denigrates it. She doesn't, you know, again, she's never hitting you over the head with that. She, she is, she's right. She's exploring it. Um, yeah. And I think Cordelia is so perfectly positioned. I mean, most <laughs> galactic women would be like not just no but hell no like you could not drag me to Barriar. you know i'd be kicking and screaming the whole way and even when cordelia you know as you say you know she's very open to to errol and to learning from errol she she's not judgmental of errol she believes in errol you know pretty pretty much from the first um and i think that I, I don't know. I mean, maybe we can talk more about this, but so initially she says no, right? He he makes his proposal and she says no. Like, I don't want to go to Barriar. Barriar eats its children, right? And we know from her conversation that Cordelia wants to have children and she doesn't want to put them through the, the meat grinder that is like the Barriar and Vore class. 
But then she she changes her mind and she says yes. And I wonder if that's because of her return to beta, right? She returns to beta and she finds that it doesn't fit her anymore. I don't know. What do you guys think? Why does she change her mind? Well, I mean, I think you're totally, you're totally right. Like she goes back to beta colony, but to me, this book, it's not just a romance, right? It's obviously more, but it's, it's looking at war and what war does to people. Uh, She's been through an actual battle. She's been through this trauma of being a prisoner of war. Um, She is sexually assaulted. Uh, She's a survivor of that. And I think it's just a very nuance and really interesting exploration of this because she's heard about barrier and culture from like the media right let's in quotation marks right uh right. she then learns about it through the lens of errol who is the best of Variar, right he's honorable right. he exemplifies the war ideals he uh, alex in your notes you've said like why does she trust him right away in my opinion, it's because he trusts her right away. He's like, "Do I have your parole?" She says yes, and he he gives her a he gives her a weapon. He's like, "Okay, then we're going to work together now that you've you've given me your parole." And so, then when she's taken prisoner by the Barriarans in the war, uh, her crew is even like, "Look, like we will we'll bail out. Like we will." do a Harry Carey for you. Like we've heard what happened to women officers when they're when they're captured and she's like no she's like i know them like they're not they're not that bad but that's because she's seen them through through errol's lens right she has been a prisoner of the barriarans before and it wasn't that bad she's like yeah it'll be fine but now it's like the ultimate reversal so i i don't know i just feel like she's really seeing barriar from all these different lenses and experiencing it from all these different lenses and because she has experienced it she can't go back and be like I'm a good Baton citizen again, right? Like she she can't. She has this this whole secret that she's got to keep. And so she really can't stay in Beta Colony. She has in some sense been changed by Barriar. And so I think she doesn't have another choice. And two, I feel like there's something about like she thinks Beta's pretty great, right? <laughs> you know she's 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 quite um i mean she's open to barrier to to errol but i i think still she's coming at it from the perspective of like oh beta colony is clearly superior to your like backwards dirtball planet and, but when she goes back to beta and the way that they treat her and the way that she is kind of depersonalized or dehumanized by these people who constantly you know ignore i i i, I wonder that like the way she's drugged against her consent by the Baden psychologist, I think is very gut-wrenching. It's it's incredibly unsettling, uncomfortable, horrifying scene. You know, as the reader, you know what's happening, but Cordelia doesn't. And I think that that in a way she has to confront the fact that beta isn't that great, right? Like the beta isn't all that she had thought it was. Her assumptions have been changed and revised, and and that, you know, that maybe you know, the right place for her isn't on beta. Um so I don't know. I guess I just find it hard to like, uh, like, sure. I believe that she's like falling in love with Errol, but like, she just like flies there without even like talking to him. So <laughs> I don't romantic. know. I'm like, yeah, that, that worked out for you, Cordelia. It's such, it's so romantic. Um, <laughs> it is. The other thing I think that Bujol is doing is she's, she, it's a commentary on, um, 
the word is gone for my brain because my brain is so old and slow. Um, it's a it's it's a commentary on uniformity and on conformity. Okay, in both societies, mm. Mm. conformity is existential. Um, mm. in beta because of the nature of this of the planet that they're on, and in barrier because it's the nature of the political system. And if you step outside of the political system, you get your head cut off. And if you're um, if there's any mutations or any disabilities or anything wrong with you physically, you're you're in trouble. Everybody has to conform. And I I realized that she wrote this in the mid eighties, um, and there it was kind of it was a time where people were exploring. I mean, this is you know pre pre the walls come down the wall hasn't come down yet um and so the communism is a big scary thing right and they're in in um it's past the get under your desk and hide days but it's still kind of lingering in there um so so i don't i'm not saying that she necessarily is seeing is saying the betas are communists but I think that discussion of conformity and what you do for the state and who you are as an individual versus individuality was, was pretty relevant during that time. Um, and I think she's, I think um, Cordelia and Errol are her examples of individuality. This is, you know, this is an individual, they're not going to conform, but these are the consequences. Um, no, I know as you say that I'm realizing that this book came out in the same year 1986 as John by Octavia Butler which is a um another you know great sci-fi novel that but that one is set um sort of post nuclear destruction of earth um and it's literally like an American versus Russian war battle gone wrong and earth has been sort of like destroyed by by nuclear weapons so yeah i think you're exactly right that that is that that is absolutely the sort of cultural moment um and the sort of cultural conversation which is interesting too because barry r is explicitly kind of russian right <laughs> like it, it, it's yeah. like this russian inflected um society like eastern european greek inflected as well yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah. i mean I've she she yeah she knew from the beginning that that barry r was going to be uh partially colonized by by russian speakers right and um i have read some interviews by her later where she was like well i'm really glad that i didn't say like soviet union <laughs> right <laughs> she goes that was really smart of me to figure that out she goes but um she did purposely make them russian and i oh, think no partially way. to tap into that cultural feeling you know mm. very much like their other like and maybe mm. to a reader at the time as well that was supposed to it was like a red herring signaling, oh, like these are right. the baddies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but obviously they're more complex than that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I almost had a, like an like I almost felt like this like they're very they're completely on opposite spectrums. But um Anne Rand, you know, when in in her um Atlas Shrugged and and everyone is is conforming and everyone is getting, you know, is working together and everyone's, which is not a bad thing. There's community. And then you have the one hero who is like, no, I'm going to do it by myself. Um, there's a, just a hint of that, I think, with Cordelia, that she's not, um, she's not a pushover. 
she's not, um, she's very sensible. She's, she's moved by emotion. Obviously she falls in love with this man and, and she, I don't, and she wouldn't leave beta. I don't think un, unless it was love. Um, but she's very straight ahead and very straightforward and very much, very sensible, so sensible. So, so much common sense. Um, as opposed to the the two cultures that she's in between, which um, have like an overarching ideology that they follow, right? Like it's right. Like militaristic or it's, you know, democratic. And she's kind of, you know, forging her own path. Um, and and, and I, again, she's just like one of those Bujold heroines who are just not, you know, they're not virgins. They're not delicate. They're, you know what I mean? They're just, they're so real. Um, yeah. Again, so common, I mean, just so much common sense. It just, common sense is not often sexy, but I think in this case, it's very romantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Arrow falls in love with her like instantly, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> he's like, you rolled over and threw up on me and I fell in love with you. And, and I think that um, maybe that's a little exaggeration on Errol's part, but I, I do think that one of the things that he first falls in love with too is her just like unshakable sense of honor. She's like, I will not leave Dubauer, right? And she, and Errol is always trying to sort of like seek that honor and do the right thing. And he sees, you know, in this case, he's like, well, maybe we should cut Dubauer's throat. Like maybe that would, that's the the right thing to do. And she's like, absolutely not right she has this this just internal sense of of ethics of of rightness right and wrong and she's flexible she's willing to change her mind she's willing to to be surprised and yet but she just has this like deep integrity right so like sort of the the thing that the reason that he gives the reason he fell in love with her is that she pours out honor like a fountain and i think that that's exactly why he falls in love with her in those first moments because she is so um strongly her her beliefs are so strong and it makes things that were not clear clear to him and i think cordelia act like a lens very often throughout the whole series helping errol see things more clearly helping us the reader kind of she gives us a little bit of like a distance from barry R so that we're not like we realize we're not supposed to think like ah rah rah imperialism you know <laughs> like she gives us a little bit of distance to see barry R through a more kind of clear uh, maybe slightly ironic slightly critical lens and she also as you know throughout the rest of the series she's gonna she's gonna sort of be constantly analyzing and helping us understand and come to understand the other characters as well so i, I yeah so cordelia as a lens cordelia as a fountain of honor i think are both those really important things for what errol sees in her so quickly I think she's so, and it's so, she's so relatable. She's such a relatable heroine because who hasn't been, had a group of guys trying to lead an expedition and you're just sitting there like, okay, stop. Okay. Children, stop, stop, stop. You know, who hasn't been in a meeting and been the only woman at the table and had to like wade through or suffer through a little display, little feathers display in some form or another <laughs> um and just thought to themselves my god if it was just a table full of women this meeting would be over by now so i completely 100 percent relate to her because in her head she's like oh my god if you people just didn't you know just let go of 
you know, your, your um, outdated notions or let go of your need for everyone to conform and, and just be sensible and just do the right thing. We, everything would be fine. Like I just, I completely hundred percent related to that. And I, I mean, I think one of the things too, so we haven't, we've talked about Errol a little bit, right? About how he's, if Barriar is, if there's something good about Barriar, like Errol is the representative of that thing. And um, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that uh, attracts Cordelia to him as well, is that he is also very much like, oh yeah, like she's right. She says we should do this thing. And he's like, yeah, we should do it. Um, Errol is such an interesting character to me. Uh, for many reasons. I mean, first he, he takes her as an equal the entire time. Part of that is because she is also the commander of the expedition. So he's like, okay, well, I'm the captain of my ship. She's the captain of her ship. So we're like equals, but later in the book, and this is almost like, so, so quick, like blink and you'll miss it. But I mean, you know, from the beginning that Bujold knew that Errol is bisexual and that he and Varatyar had a thing right yeah and when Varetyr meets Cordelia Varetyr's like oh he's like you now I see like I see what Errol sees in you like you're the the answer to a problem for him and you don't you don't understand 100% what that means for a while but it, it it's it's just I don't know I just love that Errol is such a complex character from the beginning and Bujold knows it and gives you these hints of it all throughout this book. She's very forgiving as an author when she presents her characters Um, because Cordelia could be a kind of pain in the ass and Errol could be horrific. Um, But she doesn't, she doesn't need to make them, um, bubbly or um heroic she she just needs to make them real and 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 she as the author is forgiving of their flaws and Mm -hmm. um and i there are some authors who do that i think um i feel as though um it's not sci-fi but like in historical romance i always think of loretta chase who her heroes she they're they're idiots but she but they're you know, they're idiots. They're idiots. She forgives them. She loves them. The writer, the author loves these kinds of men. Um, and so we do too. She's because she's forgiving of their flaws because she understands where they come from. And they're, they're, and she's accepting that that is part and parcel of who they are, especially in that time and place. And I feel like right. she does right. the same yeah. thing. And she does the same thing in her fantasy I mean, series too, is these heroes, none of these heroes are paragons. Right. But I mean, Errol, so- I think- Go ahead. I think that, that you sort of alluded to this already, but the fact that he sees Cordelia and respects Cordelia and sees her as an equal, and so many people in Barriar absolutely would not act that way. I mean, we, we're going to see it for books and books that like female military officers are not seen by Barriarans as equals. But I think part of the reason that Errol- does act this way and does respect Cordelia is because he's he's in his 40s and he has fucked up repeatedly right like he has made terrible decisions he has he was married before his wife died by suicide quite horribly you know in a way that he was not his fault per se but that he had a hand in the creation of those circumstances 
he has learned from his mistakes, right? And he has he has come to have a an understanding, I think, of people and of humanity and of integrity and what the right thing to do is because of this life that he's had and the way that he has learned um, about that. And I, and I do think that, you know, the fact that he is bisexual on a very sort of like compet planet like Barry R probably has played a role in this as well, that he has been forced to confront some of the prejudices of Barry R in society and realize that they're wrong. Well, and I, I think it's this book, although this may be many, many books down the line, but I think there's a part where Errol is like, yes, like I was given the opportunity to be better because I lived basically, right? Like Mm -hmm. he's been through a lot of duels. He's been through like battles. He's been at the top of the military. He's been at the bottom of the military, right? Like he was this amazing admiral and now he's just the captain of this crummy ship in this book. And he's learned from all of that and he's been given the opportunity to do that just because he has survived basically right i think that's when he's having this conversation with cordelia the sort of like dark night you know it's during the fire Mm -hmm. and they're they're in their camp and it's dark and they're having this very honest conversation about some of the differences between beta and barry are he's sort of like leading up to like maybe asking he's like so like how ask people to get married up in quality what's that like but but anyway so they're talking about the differences between the systems and he he talks about like these duels that he's been involved in and the deaths and the death of his wife and he's like so that's one thing you can say for for beta colony right is that people get a get get a chance to make mistakes a second chance yeah Yeah. there you go and that's sort of why um i find her fantasies and her characters bujold's characters some male characters so much more appealing than say um there's a you know within certain genres subgenres of romance there's the um eternal you know like 100 year old immortal guy whose life is changed by a 20 year old human being <laughs> who comes along and um it's like the reverse of the magic peen. Like, I, you know. Um, I don't know I, what you're talking about, Elizabeth. These books, that just doesn't sound like they would be popular. Nobody's ever heard of these books. And, you know, I can, I love them. Okay. I'll eat them up and yum, yum, yum. They're delicious. I, I, I'm not yucking at all <laughs> on that genre. But the, the, for me, the, it's not sexy to be 500 years old and be blown away by a 22 year old whether you're a man or a woman it's <laughs> it's 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 sad and uh i worry for you i feel for you so we so when you have someone like errol or cordelia who or 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 the hero in um the 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 sharing knife or or whatever um who understands the weight that comes with having made seriously bad life choices Mm -hmm. and walks out a better person, that is so much sexier. So much sexier than someone who's had a couple hundred years and and has used the time to become rich. Do you know what I mean? Right. Or or go to high school for the you know two hundred <laughs> years. <laughs> Again, no clue what you might be referring to. Right. So, um, yeah, I that's why I find Errol so compelling as it as, it, and that's why too I, 
as of yet have never written a virgin heroine because um, that power dynamic to me, it's not appealing. I don't find it sexy. Um, I, I feel like bringing, you know, bringing your experiences, whether they were bad or good to bed with another person who's also had their set of experiences. I think that's sexy. I think that's gritty and real and can be beautiful and can be, um, it, almost like they, they, it's an epiphany when they find the other person because they're so complex and this person's so complex, but when you put them together, it's working. Like, I, I just love that. That's why, um, I think that's why that's my, that Charge Vonner is my favorite of the entire, because I, I enjoyed them all. I'd enjoyed, I've enjoyed every single one of those books. They're so fun. They're so funny, but something about these two people who are so tired and have been through so much and they don't mm-hmm. even have to, they don't have to play. They don't have to flirt. They don't have to do anything. They just see each other. They, they, they interact and it's click, 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 click. And you know that they'll never, they're always going to love each other. That it, because it's the yeah. right things that they're falling in love with and not, you know, not, it's not lust. It's, it's definitely like, okay, things might be shitty, but it's okay. Cause it's me shitty with you. Yeah. To me, like there's, for me, like the big romance feelings come at the very end when she goes back to Barry R and she finds him sort of like drunk at Borkoskin's Low, like I'm the mess. And and it's very funny and he's, you know, it's it's sort of charming. And and he's very sort of tentative. He's like, So, like, are you gonna stay a while? <laughs> How long are you gonna be here? And she's like, No, like I'm here here, like I'm staying, I'm here. And it's very funny, but I think like they have such a deep respect for each other and like a care for one another. And there's that kind of like sense of, of caretaking in that moment, the way that she doesn't want to, you know, she doesn't want him to lose face in front of her. She doesn't, she's, she's so thoughtful about what he wants and what he feels. And and for me, that's where I really feel like, oh yes, this is a couple that's going to make it. And the other moment too is at the end with the Regency with where, <laughs> where um, Azar is wants Errol to be the Regent. And, and I can imagine another version of this book where Cordelia is like, hell no, like I came home. So I didn't come up this way to, to get involved in like the top of Barry Armour, like that he's literally going to be in charge of the whole freaking planet. Like, but instead she's like, yeah, like you, this is what you want. You, you claim not to want politics, but you do, you want to drive politics. You want to move Barry R forward. You want to fix the problems of your fucked up home world that's so beloved to you like of course you want this of course you should go for it and I love well, that because I feel like she really sees him and I feel like they're like you said yeah they're gonna make it you know there's this moment at the end where he's like what do you think and I, I love how she puts it too because she's not like you should do it or you shouldn't mm-hmm. do it or you should think mm-hmm. about the consequences she's just like look this is a test and maybe the test is like I should turn it down maybe that is that's what's being asked of you but like you have to figure it out she's like i'm going to support you whatever decision you make but it's your decision to make Hmm. uh i don't know i i do i love that moment Hmm. yeah so okay so we're we're starting to run short on time so one of the things that we haven't gotten to that i want to talk about is this is azar's plot right because that's a huge aspect of this book that um 
you know, Cordelia has the secret, which is that she has given Escobar this weapon, this plasma mirror, that when the Barriarans fire their plasma arcs, they're going to redouble back on them. And there is no way that Barriar can actually defeat Escobar because every time they fight, it just doubles back on themselves. And the Barriarans have no idea that this weapon exists, right? And so she she's feeling like hideously guilty, right? She's like, she's sitting in Errol's cabin, watching Errol oversee the invasion. And she knows that, that it's going to, you know that it's going to be a disaster and then she figures out through just a little offhand comment that he makes that he already knew that and that this whole thing was planned from the start to assassinate prince serg to destroy the war party as a political move and all of these the at the the invasion was a planned failure and it's so horrible right it is truly like it's evil and and that's what that's what Errol calls it, and he is willing to face up for that. And yet he went on with it. He he went went along with it. He helped orchestrate it, even though it is this horrible, wasteful, terrible thing. So I want to talk about that because I think it's really a really interesting and kind of unique aspect of this book. Yeah, and I I agree with you. I think it's really fascinating because Errol is held up by Cordelia and by Gold as like again the best of very are he's very honorable etc and yet he is a part and party of this horrific plan that is killing hundreds of thousands of his countrymen and all to basically save face for the emperor and to maintain the empire right and I've read, I've actually read, it's very interesting. People have like very strong feelings about this, right? Like on the internet, like forums <laughs> or people, they're like, who, why do people think Errol's such a great guy? Like he, it was like genocide. And I was like, well, it wasn't quite genocide, but yeah. like he did go along with this and he only agreed to do it if he could oversee the, the, the withdrawal, okay. right? The retreat. But like, the, I mean, it is a really good question. And he he feels really horrible about it. Like he's basically like, yeah, this is my honor that lies broken at your feet, right? Shards, shards of honor, as it were. So, and and Shocking. after having read that part, I reflected back again. I I that she must have, Bujol must have some sort of, um, ex, you know, like interest in military history, because that is the essence of being a soldier. That's the essence of war. That is the essence of um, a military complex is that you're not there. Their, their mission is not to spread peace and goodwill. Their mission is to sublimate their enemies in any way possible. So individually soldiers, you have people who serve, who are, lovely and kind and thoughtful and caring and sensitive and intelligent and wonderful, but they are part of something bigger that is terrifying and is deadly and is not fair and is not, does not build communities. It, it knocks them down. So it, that dichotomy is present within that one person is present within arrow like if you're going to be angry at what he does as a soldier then you're not looking at the broader context 
you know, I think we all grapple with that um, even today with what's happening um, in different areas of the world. Um, you can fall, you could, you can love an individual, but when that individual is part of a larger collective that you think is um, dangerous or genocidal or demeaning, how do you hold those both at once? That's a X, that's a question that, that everyone probably at some point or other has to face if they're part of a, you know, a, a, a country that has um, an armed presence, right? I remember um, this being very much a subject of conversation within my family during the first Iraq war because of how many family members we had in the service at the time and how many of us were out um, demonstrating against this at the time. How do you go to Thanksgiving dinner um, knowing that you're so far apart but also knowing that this person who who is who is who's committed themselves to this destructive force is also like the best scrabble player in the world and super sweet and really funny and silly and you spent your whole life admiring them so cordelia also come i think i think you see her come to terms with that I don't, she doesn't buy right when, you know, he, he, Eric explains it, but she doesn't, it, it takes a while to settle in for her that she yeah. can have a relationship with him even after he's done this. Well, and, and she is, you know, a soldier as well. Right. Yeah. And, and it's not as though the Baden side is, you know, unique or different from, from other militaries, right. They are intervening in an interplanetary war that they are not necessarily a part of. They are contributing to, you know, the, the, the cost through the plasma mirror. So I think, you know, she's complicit as well. And I think that, um, okay. So what I really, what I really like about this is that we're confronted with the fact that, that Errol is kind of in an impossible situation, right? That that to let Serg inherit the Empire would be a disaster. That Serg is highly militarized, that he is an expansionist, that, you know, that the Komar, the conquering of Komar wouldn't be enough, right? So they're they're in a, a, an imperial sort of inherited system where Serg is gonna become the next emperor. So this is, you know, it's it's a terrible choice either way. Both of the choices, as Errol says, are evil. And and what I think is so brilliant about the book is the way that it ends, right? Because this book ends with this random other character, this random other scene that is not any character that we know. And it's this this random, you know, ensign basically who is helping this woman who is reeling in the bodies from from this Escobar and this failed Escobar invasion. And she's reeling them in and she's identifying them and she's preparing them for for burial or for whatever um you know is supposed to happen with their remains. And she one of the bodies that she ultimately brings in is her daughter. And it is it is so devastating. I mean crushing, heart-wrenching. It is it's like the single angstiest scene in the entire series in my opinion. 
and and so what Bujold is doing is reminding us of the personal cost of this war that it is that these men in green silk rooms who are planning these um you know these events and and thinking about oh the greater future of Barriar and what's actually going to happen to Barriar that 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 is so incredibly separate from this mom who has to take care of the body of her own daughter and there's a line in Mirror Dance, um, so like way down the line, where one of the characters thinks that lives don't add as integers, they add as infinities. And I think that's such a a one of like the underlying principles of Bujold's portrayal of the military and of military encounters. And this is a military sci-fi series, but she is never going to let it be dots on a screen, right? She is always going to bring us back to the people and the personal cost. This is one of the things I love about her take on military science fiction. So this is Mill SF for sure. That's what it is. You read other military science fiction and it's very focused on like, this is the battle and how fast can the ship go to get there? Like people, they, they get really into like, oh, this is light speed and how can this person get here? And this is, the ships are going to be at the same angle here and then they can shoot the gun. Like it's really like strategizing, et cetera. And Bujol does some of that, sure. Like she's talked about how she has gone back and like looked at military history and been like, okay, well, what what's the equivalent of a wormhole? And like, what would that be? And what would the battle look like? But that's not what's important. The important thing is about the people in these battles and what it means to them. And there's a line in the book, uh, Alex, that you put in the notes that says, um, Barriar eats its young, right? Like, Barriar raises its young men to be in the military. Like the military is is glamorized. It's also a democratizing force on Barriar. So like we see it's not all bad, but it has a profound effect on every single person who's who's in it. And it's something that I really love about her take on military science fiction. Hmm. All right, so we we need to wrap up here. Let's talk about wider Vorkosaverse references. Um, so this is obviously like the first book chronologically in the series, and she is setting up so many characters. Like when Simon Illion appears, and she describes him as having a puppy face, I just like collapsed onto my couch on this reread. Simon Illion having a puppy face. I can't even express my glee yeah. over that. So Simon um, Illion is this is this young um, lieutenant, I think, right? Yeah, and. I don't know and he, he has a memory chip in his mind and he basically has to follow Errol around so that the the head okay. of Imperial Security knows what Errol's been doing. So he's like a video recorder. And he's going to be such I, an important character. I immediately wanted to go out. I immediately downloaded Bayer. Bayer. Oh, Barriar. Yes. Barriar. Yes. <laughs> so that I could 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 continue with these two, um, be, I just was like, I can't, I'm not going to, I can't stop now. Yeah. And she knew, she knew that we couldn't stop. Oh, she yeah. knew. You know? She knew. She knew. Yeah. So we've got Simon, we've got Kudelka. Yeah. Sort of Pathari. And, you know, we've got Elena Visconti and baby Elena, both of whom are going to play key roles. Yes. Oh, yes. We, I can't believe we, we talked about this book for an hour and we didn't mention Bothari. I apologize to all of you listeners out there. I know that we'll talk about we will talk about both Ari soon. Yeah, um, <laughs> we'll talk about replicators. And of so course, you have replicators. The so, replicators. Yes, right. Yeah. So she yeah. wrote. So all three of these books came out in 1986. This one, Order's Apprentice, and Ethan of Athos. So she kind of wrote them. They were bought in a three book deal. They all came out in the same year. And the Uteron Replicators appear in all of them. 
So Unicorn Replicators, I think, are one of her big contributions to the series, to sci-fi in general. Um, and it's such a satisfying, you know, <laughs> as a person who has birthed children, it, it, like, if I could imagine a scientific future, like, that would be the first thing to go, is the, is, is pregnancy childbirth. I'm just like, let's get rid of that aspect. Um, so I love that the uterine replicators are like just foundational to the Borkos again series and to her conception of of the Borkosiverse, and that she introduces it into that culture um, because it can finally give you know it gives pair. I mean, the whole point of it is parity, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Men and women, or between females and males, like people who get pregnant, it's you know they're seen as less than. They have to be protected because they're carrying children. Once you take pregnancy out of the equation, then what are you going to hang your misogyny on? Like, what are you going to hang your, your sexism on? What are you going to hang your discrimination on? Mm -hmm. Because that, that. Absolutely. And separating out this sense of gender from the sense of biology, right? right? Which, which I think that is so powerful to have this separation between this highly gendered view of women. And then like the biological aspect right. of, of gender is very satisfying to me to have, to see that separated out. Um, so we get the backstory of the Butcher of Comar series, which or story, which is going to be um, like is going to haunt the series for many, many, many books. The Butcher of Comar um, story about Errol, um, and then the plane that they discover that, that they, the whole thing starts off like is not going to go away either. And this plane is going to be referenced a lot, and then ultimately we'll have a whole book set on it. I mean, it's just really very satisfying. All right, and so then the last thing we always talk about is the title. So the title of this one is Shards of Honor. And we've kind of already started to talk about this a little bit. It was published in an omnibus called Cordelia's Honor. Right. Yeah, which, yeah, which right. is, which is yes. interesting in and of itself, right? Because Errol's talking so much about his honor and the honor of Barrier. And then, you know, it, but these three books are about, about, how, I don't know if they're they're not necessarily just about her honor, but about how she sees honor and that the mm -hmm. role that honor as a as a concept plays it throughout oh, absolutely. all absolutely really absolutely. it is throughout all the books. I mean, it's so foundational to the next generation of characters as well. The choices they make, um, you know, yeah. in in their careers, in love. I mean, honor honor is such a key and i think that's too that's one of um the reasons that cordelia is able to understand errol and barriar is through this lens of honor and she she even says i don't call it that you know she says i might call it something like the grace of god but they have you know whatever they call it, it they have the same sort of core integrity um mm -hmm. and i think that's something that she connects with him over although i also think yes. it's interesting too because there are some differences to the barrier and concept of honor and one of those is about oaths and the oaths that you swear to a person and what that means right so if if errol's oath it, who is errol's oath to is it to the barrier empire is it to azar how does that his oath how does that affect his choices and his honor in terms of his decisions And then, of course, finally, we we they're shards of honor because, as as Errol talks about in the book, like he feels that his honor has been broken at you know uh, at the feet of the emperor or on the altar of the empire. Yeah. So yeah, and one of the things that's going to come up later too is that Errol becomes sort of 
um, this is not really a spoiler, very minor spoiler, I guess. But Errol becomes very fixated upon criminal orders. And he like gives a lecture, you know, we learn later to the cadets about how do you recognize a criminal order. And I think that that, you know, separating out obedience from integrity, oaths from honor, I think is really important to Errol. And I think that comes back to the events of this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it becomes important throughout the series, of course. So. Right. Absolutely. So many of the foundations, I think, for the whole series are laid in this book in, you know, in in Bujold's sort of core themes and things that she really cares about and wants to investigate. Yeah. And then I do I do want to throw in like one final thing. I, I also feel like this emphasis on honor is another reason why this feels very at home for a historical romance reader. Right. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. that's that's such a such an important part of like historical romance is in a world that is unequal how do you find your own honor right so there you go well thank you thank you all for tuning in to our first episode we hope you really enjoyed it um elizabeth thank you so much for coming uh thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it this is a little bit outside of the normal you know uh conversations that I usually have. So um, I appreciate it. And, and I just hope that maybe someone who's listening, who, you know, is, is maybe one of your romance fans and listens to Plattress will listen to this and think, okay, I could pick this up and take a look at it and just really in, in go down that wormhole. There you go. Yeah. There you go, <laughs> guys. Okay. And it is to lovers, forced proximity, road trip romance, that's what it is right um elizabeth where can they find you and what is coming up for you they can find me i'm on the instagram at elizabeth everett author uh i'm on the facebook occasionally um and what they can do is to they can pre-order The Love Remedy, which is the first in the Damsels of Discovery series, my new series, um, and it features, um, again, it's still women in STEM in um, the mid-Victorian time, um, but these, and it's still in the same sort of universe as Secret Scientists of London, so Athena's Retreat is still there in the background, but um, this series focuses on women um, out outside of the um sort of rarefied confines of this women's club out in the world um some of them doing science some of them um facing consequences for for actions in the first book hint hint (laughs) (laughs) um and i i I'm so excited about this series. I love this book, The Love Remedy, so much. I had so much fun writing it. So um, so people can look forward to that. I am very excited to read it. Mm-hmm. I hope you I, enjoy it. Yeah. And Alex, where can they find you? Well, you can find me on my website, alexandervasti.com, or on Instagram or TikTok, also at alexandervasti. And let's see, in February, my novellas will be released digitally, so you can find them where any ebooks are sold. And then my debut novel um, will be out in July. Um, so I hope you pick it up. It's all historical romance. 
<laughs> and you can find Plot Trists on Instagram at Plot Trists. Uh, we also have a website, which is plottrists.wordpress.com. And uh, hopefully you are listening to this so you already know where you can find the podcast episodes. So thank you so much for listening. <laughs>